Uh, Shall we turn to Philippians uh, 1 and 2? That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, We're in the middle of a series called Discover Life. We're uh, changing our name to Life Church, and so we thought we'd do a series about what life, how how do we discover what church is about? What's it that Jesus has called us to? What's his purpose for us as Christians and together as a church family? And so we're digging into that in this uh, series. Uh, I'm speaking this week and... Um, and then we've got one more week, and then uh, Tom from Hope in Ipswich is going to come and speak to us. They've just been through a building project recently, so I wanted to invite him, share a bit of their story, and um, just because I trust he'll serve us really well, so we're looking forward to him coming. Um, this is uh, what we're preaching our way through. Our aim, I say our aim, really, it's Jesus' aim for us as Christians, isn't it? No matter which church you go to, you could say that this is, this is the aim. We're just putting language to what Jesus has called us uh, to do, uh, to make disciples of Jesus who live life together as church family in friendship, who learn to be like Jesus and to live like Jesus, and who love God with worship and service, and beckles and beyond with words, works, and wonders. And this is what we're focusing on this morning. We're up to um, learning to live like Jesus, because we want Life Church Beckles to be a place where people experience Jesus's life. Life in all its fullness. That's what Jesus promises us, isn't it? In John 10.10. I've come that you may have life and life in all its fullness or in abundance. That's the kind of life Jesus has for us. And we're investigating what that life looks like. And the aim is for us to make disciples, to be disciples ourselves, isn't it? Disciples are learners of Jesus, followers of his. They were, if you like, apprentices. You're like an apprentice gets, you know, maybe you're getting involved in a trade you become an apprentice, don't you, to learn alongside others. So, and it's kind of what we do with Jesus. We get alongside Jesus and we apprentice to him. We kind of come under his wing and learn um, the art of life in all its uh, fullness. I was having a, a think this week about this question. And the question was, what's the difference between somebody who's typically post-Christian secular? So somebody who's typically a secular person would describe themselves not perhaps as being religious, but post-Christian secular person, the kind of typical person you might meet on the streets of the UK. What's the difference between that person and somebody who's a Christian, somebody who follows Jesus? Um, Is it perhaps that they have Christian beliefs? I thought, well, it doesn't quite work, does it? Because obviously your everyday person on the street can have some beliefs that are Christian, can't they? We share things in common with people. Um, Could it be that we believe in God? No, because your everyday person on the street can often say that. In fact, I think in the last census, it was 60% of people said they believe in God. Maybe it's that we call ourselves Christians. Maybe that's it. But of course, 59% of people at the last census said they were Christian, but probably wouldn't say that they're following the teachings and life of Jesus. Or perhaps it's that Jesus was a good example, but we believe much more than that about him, don't we? Or perhaps it's that Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. But I've read some research recently that says there's actually a fair few people who would say they think that Jesus did resurrect from the dead, but wouldn't necessarily follow him. So I wonder what you think the answer to that is. What's the difference between a typical post-Christian secular person and somebody who would say they're a Christian? And I, I think uh, this passage is going to give us a little bit of the answer. So we're in Philippians 1, verse 27 to 2.13. 
And it starts off like this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's, that's Paul's starting point. Let your manner of life, let the, the way that you live your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. How we live our lives, how we experience Jesus' life in all its fullness. He says, so that whether I come to see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection any, and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his... Uh, only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I haven't skipped you on, sorry. Um, Therefore, my beloved... Um, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, for his good pleasure. I've missed verse 13. Let me read that as well. Um, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. Sorry, that PowerPoint was useless following that along, wasn't it? Sorry. Um, There we go. Uh, So the first point, I just want to, I'm not going to preach through the passage, I'm just going to use it as a launch pad and jump into other passages of scripture to look at what it learns like to, uh, what it looks like to live like Jesus. And the first thing that it means to live like Jesus is this, position, our positioning in life, that we surrender to Jesus as Lord. You spot it. The answer to the question, what's the difference between a typical post-Christian secular person and a Christian, I think, is found in verse 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what sets a Christian apart, isn't it? This is basically the start of Christianity. In fact, it's an early summary of what Christianity was. People would say to themselves, Jesus Kyrios, sorry, it's not very good. Jesus, uh, Jesus Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. 
In fact, in Romans 10.9, it says, doesn't it, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. A disciple of Jesus, a Christian, is somebody, ultimately, who has submitted their life to Jesus, who surrendered themselves to him, to his lordship over their lives. A post-Christian secular person and the general trajectory of Western Christian society is that, essentially... The Lord is self. I am the Lord. I'm free from lords and from kings. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the king of my own castle. My life belongs to me. So generally in society, we live by the kind of I am mine and I am Lord. Whereas for the Christian, Jesus is Lord and I am his. That's the essential difference. That we belong to the Lord Jesus. That we're his um, I read a quote um, this week by an academic called Alan Jacobs. He's written some great books. It's well worth looking up. And um, he sums up really well why he thinks there is a clash, often in society, um, over tolerance. And a clash between the secular world and what people typically believe in our culture and what we believe as Christians. And we often feel that, don't we? The tension between what's being talked about in the media and in culture and around coffee tables and in pubs and so on, and what we believe as Christians. And I think it's essentially because we're living life from different positions. We've positioned ourselves in different places. He says this. He says, uh, the secular, he's talking about the secular left here, but equally he could be talking about the secular right. Don't think of themselves as opponents of religion, and they're not, given their definition of religion, which is a disembodied, Gnostic realm of private worship and thought. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity intrinsically, necessarily, involves embodied action, i.e. living your life in your body, in the public world, i.e. how we live our life like Jesus. And this, the secular left, cannot and will not tolerate if it can help it, because it rightly understands that Christianity stands opposed to the secular left's or right's own gospel, which, popular opinion notwithstanding, is not essentially about sex, but rather may be summed up as, I am my own. I thought that was quite insightful and profound. That generally in society, you are your own kind of captain of your soul, aren't you? You're the you know, captain of your ship. The, you're the king of your own castle. Every man's an island and all that kind of stuff. We kind of, I am my own. But for Christian it is, Jesus is Lord, and I am his. The Christian life of being a disciple of Jesus is essentially about the fact that I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus. He is my Lord. I've recognized him as such. I've submitted my life to him. I'm enjoying the benefit of his lordship over my life. In fact, this is how an old... um, 16th century catechism it's called the Heidelberg Catechism it's a German um, 16th century Q&A document that goes through the kind of essentials of Christian discipleship and it starts off like this this is its first question what is your only comfort in life and death what is your only comfort in life and in death it's quite a strong question what's your only the only thing that could possibly comfort you in this life and in death, the answer, I 
am not my own. That I am not my own. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. And this is how Jesus lived his life, isn't it? He lived his life in surrender and submission. He surrendered to the Father, didn't he? It says it in verse 6 in our passage that he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But actually, he submitted to what the Father sent him to do. Verse 8, that he was obedient to death. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus said things like, uh, the Son, talking of himself, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. He lived his life in surrender to the Father. And living like Jesus is living our life in surrender to God. It's living our life completely in his hands. He's the Lord of it. He's the boss of our lives. And this is the beginning of our Christian life, and this is the middle, and it's the end, isn't it? Discipleship um, is, is more of a path than a pavement. It's like a path you tread out. You know when you kind of like go on one of those public footpaths and you think it looks pretty solid at the start and then you get into it and you're like, I'm creating this footpath. This is not a footpath, I am creating it. And the Christian life is like that. You start off and you decide to follow Jesus and you head off following him and actually you have to kind of tread out the path for yourself. It's not a pavement. It, hasn't get, it doesn't get pre-laid for you. You start following Jesus, bang, the pavement goes down and there it is. Oh, handy. Well, that was easy. You find your way to heaven with Jesus. No, it's a, it's a path you tread out. You have to kind of day by day kind of, you know, kick the bushes to the side and hack it away because discipleship is something that starts straight off but it's something that we ongoingly work out in our lives. And Paul gives some examples in the passage of how it works out for the Philippians. He talks about living in unity with humility, being obedient. I wonder what it's looking like in your life at the moment. Let me give some personal um, examples, and maybe that will kind of trigger some things in your own mind about what it means to live under Jesus' lordship for you uh, right now. When I was young, I was always looking for relational intimacy. That was really important to me, because I got bullied and rejected at school. The thing that became important to me in my young adult years was relational intimacy, because I remember what school was like. There was no relational intimacy with anybody all day. It was horrible. So I was like, I need to go and look for that somewhere else. And I'd go searching for it in all kinds of places, sexual relationships with women, in pornography, in these kind of things, daydreaming about what life would be like if I was in an intimate relationship with someone, going searching for the thing that I was uh, looking for. But ultimately, relational intimacy is found in relationship with God, isn't it? You know, even when I was lonely in school, the good news was is that Jesus was always there. I was in a relationship with him at least, and I had some sort of connection with someone who was there with me in it, helped me through the pain of it. And when I got out and looking for relational intimacy elsewhere, eventually just finding, actually, no, relational intimacy is with God. And therefore, I don't need to go searching for it anywhere else. And I can live life in relationships with other people appropriately. It enabled me to live celebrately and enjoy friendships with others. It helped me when we got married me not to put all the relational intimacy on Jess, but knowing that I had relational intimacy with God. 
So I wonder what that looks like for you. What does ongoing surrender to Jesus' lordship of your life look like? Is it about your dreams in life? So if you're kind of my kind of age, you're in that kind of age where you're dreaming of what your, the rest of your life is going to be. I'm going to have? What kind of a job will I have? What will my kids turn out to be like? What kind of jobs might they do? Or perhaps it's what your retirement's going to look like, how you'll spend your time and what it will feel like. Maybe it's about what you want to achieve in life. Maybe it's about your sexuality and who you sleep with. Maybe it's about your finances and seeking Jesus' kingdom first rather than your own comfort What does it look like to make Jesus Lord of your life, to position yourself submitted uh, to him? Holy Spirit, we just pray you would, this morning as I'm speaking, just come and illuminate our hearts as I was praying earlier. Reveal things to us. Holy Spirit, none of us know what's, what's going on in each other's hearts, but you do. None of our hearts are hidden to you. So we pray, just as I'm speaking now, would you come and highlight some things going on in our lives and in our hearts and help us address them with your gentle spirit encouraging and loving us and correcting us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's uh, the first one, our position. If we're going to live like Jesus, we submit ourselves to Jesus as Lord. The second thing in the passage is this, our attitude. What's our attitude in life? It's to be cross-shaped Denial. You have a look at verses 5 to 8 in the passage. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves. What Paul's saying to them is, this is to be your attitude in life. If you want to live like Jesus, have this attitude. He says, have this mind, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, i.e., this is how Jesus lived. Though he was in form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. (laughs) I remember just off the top of my head. I went to a, a CU training thing for leaders who are in the CU, and the guy, <laughs> he's got to remember his name, he's called Andy Robinson. He stood up, and you know, when you're young and in uni and you've just been appointed to a position on the CU committee, it was quite a, you know, amongst the hundreds that were there. And he goes, You're nothing. <laughs> That's how he started off. I was like, All right. Um, and that was his starting point, and he preached on. On this passage, I remember it well. Um, it's stuck with me. When somebody tells you, you're nothing. Uh, Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the attitude of a disciple of Jesus. This is what it means to live like Jesus, to have this mindset, this attitude. Um, in Matthew uh, 16, you know that point where Peter says that you're the Christ and he acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. The passage straight after this says this, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed and on the third day be raised. And what does Peter do? It says Peter took him aside and said uh, to him, far be it from you Lord, this shall never happen to you. <laughs> Just say, Jesus I Hannah got that right. That's not the plan. This is not what the Old Testament says. You're meant to ride on in in victory. It's meant to be glorious. We're meant to kind of, you know, save people. You're not meant to go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed. He kind of probably looked over the on the third day be raised thing. And Jesus says this to him, but he turned 
and said to Peter, get behind me. Doesn't he? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus tells his disciples this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Get behind me. That's the position of a disciple, isn't it, that we've just been talking about. It's behind Jesus. It's behind him, following him, being a disciple, an apprentice of his, submitting our lives to him, surrendering to him, following his lead, getting him to show us the way, showing us how to live life. And what Peter was doing when he said, no, no, Jesus, he was making himself Lord again. And Jesus says, get get behind me, because that's where we belong because that's where life is found, behind Jesus, following him, living life like him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him just deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So what's the next thing when we've positioned ourselves behind Jesus, submitted ourselves to him, is to take, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. How do you do that? He says, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's an attitude of humility, not set on our dreams and desires, our preferences, our wants, our understanding of the world, what we think should happen, telling Jesus, come here. That's not the way to live life. You don't want to go to the cross and die. I don't want to go to the cross and die. Let's live life this way. This would be much better. And that's constantly what our kind of like natural self is constantly trying to do, isn't it? No, no, Jesus. You don't want to do live life. Life's not found that way. Dying to yourself. Taking it. No, come here. And rebuking Jesus. And kind of, I don't know, life's found over here. And Jesus says, no, get behind me. Some, you're setting yourself on the things of man. Set yourself on, set your mind on the things of God. An attitude of humility sets our minds on the things of God, his ways, his plans, his future for our lives. He says, Jesus says in John that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He says the same line again. Whoever, loses his, uh, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the paradox of Jesus' life, isn't it? That through death, comes life that's the nature of the gospel isn't it jesus died on the cross and then was resurrected to life and so the pattern and attitude for us is to humble ourselves like jesus to constantly die to things in order to experience life by dying to ourselves like a grain of wheat in the ground we enter into jesus's resurrection and life and bear fruit and find life if you've been a Christian for some time, you realise that this is kind of the pattern of life, isn't it? That you constantly have to tell yourself no. <laughs> Sometimes I'm preaching and I'm like, oh man, you know. You just have to constantly die to things that you would prefer to do. That is, that's the Christian, that's what Jesus is saying. Take up your cross, deny yourself. Tell yourself no all the time. When you set yourself on the things of man, what you hoped and planned for in life. 
and set yourself, set your mind on the things of God. I'm going to give some personal examples um, from this week of that. Jess and I um, have very different ways of planning a holiday time, or not planning. I like to see people because, you know, I'm a big extrovert, so let's plan every day to the hill with people. We'll plan something every day. We'll squeeze them. We'll do two people each day. We'll do one family in the morning. That would be a, that's the way I would prefer to plan it. And we'd be out every evening. Jess would like to plan it like this. Not. She would like to not plan it. She would like it just to happen. Nothing to be in the diary. Utter, just a vacant space. When you look in the diary, you're like, there's nothing there. Brilliant. Perfect. Great week planned. And so, both of us, I know people call it compromise in marriage, but essentially what we both have to do is die to what we would prefer in order to love the other person well. We have to make a sacrifice. I have to go, I'm probably not going to be able to plan something every day. Maybe one or two days. See some family on this day or go to Norwich on this day, which is what happened this week. And Jess has to go, we cannot just ignore invitations and invites and uh, we can't just completely leave the diary spare. And she has to die to her preference to live life entirely spontaneously. And we were working that through this week. So it's fresh in my mind. Uh, (laughs) But it's genuinely painful, isn't it? It is actually really hard to constantly tell yourself no and die to the things that you prefer. No, that actually feels like quite a trivial example. But actually, for both of us, it was really quite painful. And it genuinely hurt. It was a real sacrifice. And at times, a week off on holiday is actually quite difficult because we've got to work that out and kind of live it afresh. Or perhaps um, what you do with your money. If you give to church on a regular basis, you're giving into the things that God's doing amongst us, there's constant self-denial going on, isn't there? You look at that figure that you're about to pop into New Life Beckles' account, and you th- if you pause just for a minute and just think, ooh, what could I do with that? <laughs> and suddenly you're into a situation where you're like, oh, man, I could do this. And you know what? That thing we're unable to do with the house, we could, just, not, just for one month, not give that into the kingdom of God, and we could do this instead. That would be life, wouldn't it? Because then this thing with the house we've been waiting ages to do just needs that bit of money to do that. And you have to die to yourself, take up your cross, and click confirm and enter into the joy of it. There is genuine joy in it. You might take time to realize the joy in it, but there is joy in it. And that's what cross-bearing is like, isn't it? It's loving sacrificially, it's forgiving when it's painful, it's giving up time and energy and money to serve, it's acting with integrity when it would be easier just to kind of go along with the crowd, it's admitting weakness and failure when we'd rather look strong, it's speaking up when it's easier to be quiet and when it's going to kind of do our reputation damage or we're going to look foolish or whatever it might be. The Christian life of learning to live like Jesus is one of constant self-denial, it's cross-shaped self-denial, that's our, our attitude third thing is our guide whether we're led motivated and empowered by Jesus' spirit it says in verse 1 in the passage if there's any participation in the spirit what Paul's referring to is that the spirit lives in us his temple the church where he has made his home amongst us by the spirit dwelling and living inside of us 
and then we live out following Jesus and living life like him in community with one another. We're people of the Spirit. We participate in the Spirit when we live life together here on Sundays in our house groups during the week and, and so on amongst church family. That's what Paul says in verse 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. That living life with Jesus is partnering with him. It's cooperating with his spirit as we kind of tread out the path. That you kind of don't just tread out the path however you would like to. He kind of leads you and guides you and motivates you to kind of tread the path out so you know which way to go in life. And this is uh, um, not just, yeah, he motivates it and puts it in our heart, but he also empowers us. He gives us his spirit to live it out. Because like I've been saying, it's obviously difficult being denying yourself all the time. You need a power to help you do that, don't you? Because if you said to somebody, constantly don't do the thing that you would rather do, <laughs> they would not keep it up, would they? You, you just wouldn't keep that kind of life up. You need empowerment to do it. Um, and this is what uh, we sometimes call compatibilism, that both God's will and our will are working together. He leads and motivates and empowers us, and we act um, and we work out what it means to follow Jesus as Lord with an attitude of self-denial. How does this work out in life? I was listening to an example the other day of a harbour pilot. You know, container ships come into a harbour. Apparently what happens, I'm no expert on this, this is a second-hand story I heard from somebody else. Um, so I hope I explain it well and remember it well enough. But uh, essentially what happens is when you get close to the port, a harbour pilot will come onto the shipping container and stand behind the pilot of the container ship. And he'll stand behind him and give him or her directions and help them navigate their way into port because they know the harbour really well. They know where all the kind of problems are. They know which way to turn, what speed to go at, etc., etc. And so the harbour pilot will tell them, this speed in this direction, okay, stop, turn this direction at this speed. And, and that's what the har- constantly this voice behind the shipping uh, the ship's uh, pilot, telling them what to do, guiding them. And uh, that's a little bit of what life is like with Jesus, is that he's the Lord of our lives, and he's, by his spirit, helping to guide and lead us. And uh, I heard a story of one um, pilot on the ship not listening to the harbour pilot, and guess what happened? He crashed it into a highway. I don't know how you do that. You know, presumably he can see the highway. But in Oregon, Portland in Oregon, drove a shipping container into a highway because he didn't listen to the harbour pilot. And that's what can happen in our lives, isn't it? When we don't listen to the leading of Jesus by his spirit, we can make a little bit of a car crash, a ship crash, <laughs> a shipwreck, that's the right word, of our lives, can't we? And Jesus is our example in this. He lived a spirit-filled life. He's shown us what it looks like to live life filled with the Spirit, guided, led, motivated, empowered by the Spirit. Um, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, wasn't he? Then he was baptized in the Spirit. The dove came and rested on him. Then, full of the Holy Spirit, it says in Luke, he was led into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil and he resisted him. Why? How did he manage to do that? Forty days of not eating being tempted by the devil himself, not like one of his minions, not one of his workers, the devil himself. How did he manage that? Full of the Spirit. 
And then what happens? He performs signs and wonders in the spirit. He stands up in the synagogue and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. To do what? To preach good news to the poor. Everything that Jesus does is in the power of the spirit. Because it's really tempting to say, to read Jesus' life and go, yeah, well, of course he did. He's God. You know, if I had that advantage, I'd do a lot better too. (laughs) But I don't. So, well done him. Bit different for me over here. But we we don't have that available to us. Because Jesus lived life full of the Spirit. He didn't like, uh, you know like those toys you get where you just press a button and it goes into some sort of superhero mode. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't go, oh, temptation. And then, easy, no problem. Healing, you know, whatever it is. He doesn't do that. He's living life full of the Spirit. He's seeing what the Father does and he does it. He hears what the Father's saying, he does it. That's what it looks like to live like Jesus, to be full of the Spirit, led, guided, motivated by him. So the Spirit comes to live inside of us when we become a Christian and disciple, but we spend our whole lives trying to work it out, learning to live like Jesus with him as our guide, being empowered by him to do what we otherwise couldn't. I'll give a personal example. When I was... um, uh, a teacher. I, I felt God asked me to stop being a teacher for a while, make as, make money however I could, so I could give more time to serve at Kings, finish my masters, do some leadership training, uh, to eventually do something like this. It seems to have been a good decision. Um, but actually, at the time when I made the decision, um, I ended I ended up doing some supply work teaching, which was really sporadic in the beginning. And I didn't know whether I was going to get one day a week or two days or three days. And basically, financially, it didn't really feel like it was adding up at times. And it was a real squeeze. And so I thought, I saw this advert for a job in Terrington St. Clement, which is in Kings Lynn. And I was living in Norwich, beyond Kings Lynn. I thought, three days a week. Perfect. I'll probably earn me just about enough money to live. And then I can give the other two days a week to doing whatever I was with church. It wasn't quite what God had asked me to do. But I thought... This will work better. Then I'll have the security of knowing this amount of money is coming into my bank account. So I got the job, and of course, after a half term, I resigned the job because it wasn't working. Because I hadn't been led and guided and motivated by the Lord. He had led and guided me and motivated, and I went, this is quite hard. Maybe if I did this instead, that would be better. And he went, no, because that's not what I've asked you to do. What I was being led by was my own sense of personal security and having a secure income and he said trust me i'll make sure you have enough you don't have to worry the birds remember that passage in matthew the birds you know it all works out you're okay seek first the kingdom of god i'll take care of the rest your father knows what you need you'll have it that's what he said to me and i went no i'd rather just get this job over here and then i really know it's coming in And that's what it's like, isn't it? Often we get led by something else, our own insecurities, or guided by our own wisdom. And then we lack the power to do it. Do you know why I gave the job up? It was in Terrington St. Clement. It was like an hour and ten minute drive away. But I couldn't afford the fuel, because the job didn't pay very much. So I ended up getting a lift with someone, which meant that I had to get up earlier. And I'm not really a morning person. So getting up at like before 5am to drive to somebody's house, to then get a lift to the the town, and then... after a half term and I also thought I've got this teaching thing nailed done it for two years in a nice school in Norwich these kids didn't want to listen to me and I was like you mean I've got to learn to teach all over again and I went actually no I don't I could just follow Jesus instead and I wouldn't have to do this 
and I could do what the thing that he's told me to do. And that's what happens when we, sometimes we're led by our own wisdom, insecurities, and so on. We can make a bit of a car crash or a shipwreck um, in moments in life. So I wonder what your motivations in life are that are yours, not God's. What ways are you being guided in life where you're being guided by your own wisdom rather than what he's said to you? Where are you lacking power to kind of do the thing that you need to in life, essentially because you don't really have the conviction that God's led you into it? Holy Spirit, we pray, come and reveal our motivations to us. To us, Come and um, help us understand where we're following our own wisdom, where we're kind of living life without your power working in us. Reveal it to us, Lord, so that we can live life your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, final thing is our lifestyle, following the habits of Jesus. I was really struck. The reason I chose this passage was because of verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I thought if I was going to, if I'm going to teach on learning to live like Jesus, this would be a good passage to do. Because what Paul's saying is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the gospel of Christ? Well, um, following Jesus is something you do, isn't it? It's something that you, like, you put into action. It's not a theory you have. It's something you actually do. And the gospels are what? They're biographies, aren't they? They're stories of Jesus' life. Stories telling us what he did and what he taught. They describe his life. They tell us how he lived, his lifestyle. We often hear much about Jesus' teaching and his preaching, don't we? And what he's commanded us. And the Sermon on the Mount is very famous, isn't it? But we often neglect the way that Jesus lived his life. The kind of habits he had. The things that he did. The rhythm of his life. But there's definitely something to be learned there, isn't there? In the way that he lived his life. And I was reflecting on John 15. And that's the passage where Jesus gives the picture of the vineyard. And he tells us that if we abide in, we should abide in him so that we bear fruit. Yeah? Remember that? What's that picture all about? The picture of the vineyard. What does it mean? Well, I was thinking about what's under a vineyard. If you want a vineyard to grow well, what do you need? You need a trellis, don't you? You need a trellis for the, vine, the vines to grow up in order to be a bear good fruit. It's a structure to hold up the vine so it can grow and bear fruit. And if we want to bear fruit in abiding in Jesus, knowing him, finding life in all its fullness, then what do we need in life? We need a trellis. We need a structure for our vineyard. We need uh, habits. We need practices of Jesus. We need what lots of writers would call spiritual disciplines, which I think can be a little bit unhelpful, on because they're things that people tend to think spiritual, immaterial, not spiritual, something I do. And discipline is like not a yay word in culture at the minute, is it? (laughs) So spiritual disciplines, but we need habits, practices of Jesus to help us put the trellis in place. But the trellis isn't the end, and we often treat it as though it is. The end goal isn't behavior, practices, and habits. And we often treat the Christian life like that, don't we? I'm kind of aiming to read my Bible every day, pray for 20 minutes, um, do X, do Y. And that's the goal. And I'll be a good Christian, and I will have achieved it, and there'll be success when I manage to do that every day, and I'm in the discipline of doing it. And we can kind of get legalistic um, about it, can't we? 
Um, where was I? Sorry. A vine without a trellis withers and dies, doesn't it? And in the same way, a life without habits and the practices of Jesus withers. The trellis makes space for the vine to grow and to bear fruit. And so, the practices and habits of Jesus open us up to a power that enables us to change and to grow and to live life like Jesus. So, what are the, some of the practices of Jesus? What are some of his habits? What are his spiritual disciplines? We could do a whole series on this, so I'm going to skip through it really quickly. And there'll be things common to, like, to what you've heard. Mike preached a couple of weeks ago on Jesus being in Gethsemane. What, what did Jesus do? He went and prayed as usual. As usual, he went to the Mount Olives and prayed. Went to the garden and prayed. That was a habit of Jesus. As usual, he prayed. Fasting. For 40 days, he went into the wilderness and fast in order to grow, draw strength for ministry. It says in Luke 4.16 that he went to the synagogue as was his custom i.e. Jesus went to worship with others on a regular basis, like we're doing here this morning. Study at 12, the age of 12, we see him in the temple asking questions, growing in wisdom. Solitude, says in Luke 5.16 that he withdrew to desolate places and prayed, getting time alone. That's something that's quite important in our culture, isn't it? The amount of noise. Just if you're like... If you've got a phone, the amount of noise in your life is like phenomenal, isn't it? It's constantly beeping at you or messages are popping up or so on. It's just noise. You need solitude to get away to a desolate place. Simplicity. Jesus made it clear he had little concern for possessions and that our Father knows what we need. I've probably spoken about that. Rhythm of work and Sabbath rest. Lots of the stories start with Jesus spending an entire day resting with his friends. You know, it was the Sabbath, and Jesus was walking through the field of corn. Yeah, He had a rhythm every week of resting and slowing down and spending time with his friends. And there are many more, but I'm going to stop there, and we'll do a series on it and do it properly another time. I don't, if you've been a Christian for some time, the times when you put the trellis in place and practice some of these habits of Jesus, you will have experienced growth. If you try and remember the times when you think, I felt closest to Jesus in those times, there was real growth going on. I felt like God was really doing something in me. And I bet it's because there was a good trellis in place. It's certainly the case for my life. I think, when was I most fruitful in life? When was, when was I experiencing the presence of Jesus in a special way? There was a good trellis in place. But like I say, we can get into legalism, can't we? And if... This might be the way that, this is the way I used to think about, um, in my early 20s, used to think about these kind of things. I would think, you know, if I'm doing them on a regular basis, yay, I'm being a good Christian. Life's going well, and I'm making a success of it. If I'm not doing it, things are bad. Hmm. I'm not doing a great job of being a Christian. I feel a bit down about my relationship with God. And think he thinks differently of me which is quite a legalistic way of thinking about it, isn't it? Because if we think about it like that, the end results are either pride, because I got it right. I read my Bible today. I spent time in prayer. Yes! Nailing it. Pride. Oh, I didn't do it this week. I don't think I spent any time in my Bible. Didn't pray at all. And you can't get down about yourself. And often think that's the way that God thinks of you. The 
truth is God's love for you is not changing or shifting depending on whether you have or haven't that week. So if we think that's the end goal, I want to live life like that, practice those habits, we've kind of missed we kind of missed the mark, as it were. That success or the aim, the goal, is abiding in Jesus. That's what Jesus was saying. Abide in me. Enjoy life in all its fullness by setting up a trellis to help you grow and bear fruit in that. So, what do you need to change about your habits in life to live like Jesus, establish a decent trellis so you can bear fruit and enjoy Jesus and his life in all its fullness? And when you do that, ask the Spirit to help you. And don't think, I'm succeeding in life if I do it, and failing in life if I don't. Because it's just, you can't win that game. Both, whether you get it right or wrong, you lose. Should we get ready to worship? Should we stand? And we're uh, just going to ask the Spirit to come and speak to us. Should we invite the Holy Spirit to come? I think it's some of the contribution when uh, Cheryl prayed earlier. It was about, wasn't it, the Spirit coming and speaking to us? And uh, as we've been, as I've been speaking, we've been inviting Him, hasn't it? And as as I preached about our position or our attitude, our guide, and our lifestyle, the Lord will have been speaking to each of us. Um, so, Holy Spirit, our hearts are open to you. Your the one who's all-knowing. You're the, the one who knows where our hearts are at and what we're thinking. Um, I would pray, Holy Spirit, you would come now and come and speak to us. We're going to sing in a minute, your grace is enough. Lord, we need the grace of your presence with us. Whatever we're finding challenging, whatever you've put your kind of finger on this morning, we need your the grace of your presence with us to help us walk through it. Whether it's repositioning our life just to totally surrender it to you, whether it's our attitude and our mindset of needing to constantly die to ourselves and take up our cross, whether it's living life with your wisdom under your guidance, or whether it's putting into practice the habits that you had during your life, what we need is your grace with us that's enough we don't need 10 steps to success as a Christian we don't um, we don't need anything like that we need your presence with us helping us humble ourselves and get behind you helping us just have an attitude of humility in life being empowered by your spirit to make to die to ourselves, make difficult decisions so that we can find life in you. We need your Spirit's help to put the trellis in place in life so that we can enjoy knowing you and find life in all its fullness. We thank you that's your promise, Lord, that your life is life in abundance. So we ask, Lord, lead us into abundance. And even though the way might look difficult, might look odd, might look strange to us, might look paradoxical, we pray, Holy Spirit, help us tread out the path as we follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.